0: Hello and welcome to The Regen Report, a monthly podcast about taking regenerative agriculture to scale and diversifying life on the land. I'm Alexandra de Blas. In this episode, we head south to Tasmania to meet Sam and Steph Trithui, founders of Tazagco, a regenerative startup business producing beyond sustainable beef. And we look at proposed rule changes for soil carbon, which would allow farmers to receive annual payments for their soil carbon projects. Sam and Steph Trithui are the founders and directors of the Tasmanian Agricultural Company. Almost two years ago, they moved onto their new farm at Dunorlin in north-central Tassie and began the conversion to a regenerative system. In June last year, they were the first farmers in the state to register a soil carbon project under the Emissions Reduction Fund. And just a couple of months ago, they launched their regenerative beef product through Hill Street Grocer stores across Tasmania. I caught up with Sam and Steph on their property overlooking spectacular mountains, green rolling hills and mobs of thriving cattle. So Sam, we're here on the top of your farm in central north Tasmania and uh, it's at Dunorlin. It's a beautiful location. It's really stunning. You can see the great western tiers. To the south we've got
1: Mount Roland due west. To the southwest we've got the Gog Range. Not many people know about it. It's pretty spectacular and I, I haven't uh, done it myself yet but apparently it's pretty pretty epic bushwalk
0: it looks like it would be.
1: It's very beautiful. Give me some background
0: about what led you to
1: come to Tasmania
0: and what you were doing before that made you come to the position that you thought, yeah, I want to set up a, a start-up in Tasmania and produce beyond sustainable beef.
1: I mean, I grew up here and as is often the case, home is where the heart is. So it was in my early, mid-30s and wanted to kind of come home and bringing up children down here is amazing and that was kind of where Steph and I were headed. So, you know, there was, I suppose, a, a personal reason there. Had enough of the mainland and what we're doing was a culmination of my experience of, of some passions. There's some interests and passions there for Steph around food and some environmental stuff alongside marketing and branding, storytelling. So it was this kind of... You know, matrix of a lot of different moving parts. The discussion started on our honeymoon, sitting in a pool in Thailand. Actually, was where where the original <laughs> ideas kind of came from, and it you know obviously evolved enormously since then. But yeah, I mean, here we are kind of 18 months on after having moved here, you know, incredibly happy and content with our decision. But of course, you know, churning and, and peddling like crazy to try and get things happening. So, but no, it is a beautiful location. And I suppose for us, we didn't buy it because it was so beautiful, although that's an absolute bonus. But it was really a an environmental and I suppose, you know, lifestyle choice. And when I say lifestyle, it was like we, we wanted to be close to major centres, close to airports, all of our family now, or well, most of them all on the mainland but it had to have still have that good reliable rainfalls you all of a sudden you start to narrow down the area and here we are.
0: But tell me a bit about your regen experience yep. prior to setting up, because it takes courage to come and do what you've done. So yeah. how much background did you have?
1: I've grown up, I suppose, in and around the RCS grazing principles that dad was one of the first to do Terry McCosker's course kind of, I think, back in the 80s. And so I've kind of been around that. You know, the biggest thing about regenerative farming, it's not the kind of what we do. It's, it's more why you do it. Charlie Arnott talks about the paddock between your ears. That type of mentality is really important. It's kind of why you do it. And, and for me, it was like... A The conventional system never made sense. I never felt comfortable with many aspects of it and in everything that I've done in my life, all the way through back to stupid school projects, I always had to be different. I always had to ask, why? Why do we do it like that? And I've never, ever taken the status quo at face value and just said yes and got on with it. So when it came to the regen approach... Yeah, I suppose I'd grown up, you know, asking questions around how we manage farms, why we manage farms, what we're actually managing for, what we're actually producing. And the RCS kind of principles will start to shift your mindset around those types of things. And then I was actually running a little business helping small landholders around Melbourne. So, you know, people that have got 5, 10, 20, 50, 100 acres, a place to open a bottle of bubbles on the weekend type stuff. And, and of course, they're quite environmentally focused and they don't quite understand why we have to use all these chemicals and synthetic pesticides. They don't understand why you would put something that's kind of man-made on a natural system and so it's amazing once you're around people that that aren't farmers how freshly that they look at things and usually the regenerative organic scene is quite easily picked up by smaller farmers so i was around a lot of these guys right and and that's kind of where to give credits where credit's due is farming secrets hugo and and helen disler like this is 10 or 15 years ago martin strapper all these kind of guys that were talking about this stuff before it was even a whisper and i used to follow them and watch it and listen and learn and yeah i suppose to fast track i then went and worked on conventional farms all around australia and some parts overseas and then we kind of came back into kind of building this out you know beef's become the punching bag of all debates around climate change and I was like well hang on here you know we've sequestered a lot of carbon on our farms over the years you know through regenerative grazing principles there's a lot of now really cool information on other tools that you can use on your farm to get your soil up and going and so it all kind of come together and I think well now's the time that we need a really really you know beyond sustainable beef product not just from a consumer point of view but from a farm production point of view and and then for me just quickly it was around building data like if we're going to do this and, and scale this into a economically viable commercially sustainable enterprise and attract large amounts of capital in the future and hopefully we can start to produce food like this on scale around the world we're not going to be able to do that without data and then i suppose coming from with my tech background uh, with startups it was around building data where we can around that and i mean we're just start getting going so I, I don't have any enormous amount of evidence to show but things are kind of going well at this stage although it's incredibly tough work
0: when you say building data, what do you mean by that?
1: Basically, if I can create a data point around it, I'll do it. So let's start off with the carbon piece. It's one of the main reasons I went with AgriProof. It's because it's got that, you know, internationally validated, signed off on UN-Paris Agreement, Australian Emissions Reduction Fund testing methodology. And so there's two pieces around that: is It's it's the most rigorous testing methodology. And so if we're going to be kind of held in the consumer market and or criticised or questioned on our ability to claim certain things around carbon, well, if I've got the world's best practice methodology to lean back on and go well this is what we do you've got nowhere to go so that was one of the main reasons second reason i just enjoyed working with the agri team and i suppose the last reason for me is as every market evolves the carbon market needs to grow up needs to become a lot more mature and like you know ag tech and other sectors there's a lot of cowboys running around making claims and doing this and doing that and the wagyu game which what we're kind of involved with is a great example after 30 odd years now it's, it's gaining some maturity and, and what i mean is if i can use the analogy of the wagyu game is that the guys that focused on data and breeding good animals and focusing on good production and good commercial stuff and as i said focused on that data and that genetics and the estimated breeding values and all that stuff is they're the ones now in a mature market that are being rewarded and are fetching big money for their genetics and their carcasses and whatnot, right? Whereas the guys that just joined anything and got anything pregnant because it was a wagyu, they're the ones that can't keep up and are going broke. And I would say the same is the same for the carbon pieces. Given the testing methodology that AgriProve use, that in time as more maturity comes into the carbon market, they will be a high value carbon credit. They will be the credits that are internationally recognised that we can sell and pitch and make more money from, as opposed to some that perhaps don't have the same level of rigorous testing methodology. So without digressing the conversation too much and getting back onto your original question as to what data points, I mean everything from, we do blood tests on animals, we do feed tests, we do plant tissue tests, we do soil tests, you know, linking up what trace elements and minerals are available in the soil but aren't available to the plant and then but if they don't pop up in the plant, sometimes they pop up in the animal, so what does that look like, why does that happen? Our commercial data, like, you know, let's talk kilos of beef produced per hectare or our gross margin per hectare, like that's what farmers understand, so any and all of those environmental farm production and commercial data points that we can build and trace So as I said, in five years we can turn around and go, well, we do produce as much or more or whatever kilos of beef per hectare. Our inputs are actually 20 or 30% or whatever they are of a conventional system. And we're producing, we believe, a better quality product. And or even if it's the same quality product with less inputs and we're maintaining productivity and we're having a a kind of a net positive impact on our farm environment, why wouldn't you do it? So um, that's why we're building the data and that's some of the data points that we're working on.
0: Across the farm. You've been here for 18 months. How's it going?
1: It's tough. It's really tough. I mean anyone that tells you the regenerative agriculture is easy or there's a lot of hot air and, and I, I think stretched truths and promises in this space right and that kind of takes me back to my earlier point around cowboys in the space and I'd argue that the region ag sector's got its fair share of cowboys as well and some of them aren't actually or usually always they're not on farm they're kind of just out there as true believers it's wonderful to have them but they're perhaps making claims and saying things that really on farm in, in practice aren't actually true so to answer your question it's tough you know we're, tra- we're changing ecosystems and natural systems and that takes time we live in a instant gratification world and I'd argue that conventional agriculture is a great example of that as I need a fix, I chuck on X amount of foot, and I get that response immediately. Like, I don't think farmers sit down generally and start making plans for their environment three, four, five years out. I mean, you're generally focused on your next crop cycle, you know, and that's a generalisation. But I, I think that's, it is tough, you know. We've got weed burdens and we're not wanting to use a lot of pesticides. This place has traditionally had a lot of nitrogen applied at least once a year and it would seem from the soil test that not a lot of else was put on and so I suppose when you've got heaps of nitrogen going on the place looks great, grows lots of grass but perhaps... You
0: haven't got as many microorganisms in the soil doing the work that provides the soil structure and and underpins a regenerative system.
1: Yeah, and you're not replacing other nutrients. So if you just put on, just like only eating carbohydrates every day and not eating any protein or fat, right? I mean, it might work for a while, but sooner or later things get out of whack. And that's what we've got a problem with here. And because you put a heap of nitrogen on, the place looks great. But underneath it all, you've actually got an enormous, which we do, phosphorus deficiency. Like I mean, significantly high phosphorus deficiency. So, And then that then plays into microbes. And they're asleep or not working for other reasons, and so yeah, and there's all these things that are obviously all interconnected and related that we're all just trying to get up and going. So, to answer yeah. your question, if you're driving past the farm and you're looking at all the other farms in the area, you drive past here, you think, Jesus, what are those guys doing? You know, it's you know? not that bad. No, it's not that bad. No, no, you're right. No, I suppose if you don't know, it looks you're... pretty beautiful. Yeah, actually, it does look beautiful, but I suppose if you're a farmer and you're looking at the place, you are going, oh, that place looks like it's struggling a bit. But look, you know, we're still running good stocking rates. We're putting off a great quality beef product, which is the main thing. Yeah. But we are changing natural system and in two or three years I hope that when you ask me the same question we can say look the place is flying we're producing shitloads of feed cattle are happy things are cranking and we've you know we've got our bacteria fungi ratios back in go and and it's all happening so it's always the way when you convert a farm this is the fifth farm that I've converted and I think just to that point, a lot of critics of the regenerative agriculture piece, and not a lot of them have actually ever converted a farm. They've never actually taken on a piece of land and completely and utterly changed the way that that place is managed from fertiliser, chemicals through to species, the whole lot. And I think that that's something that it's easy to judge on, but it's an incredibly difficult process to undergo and we're in the middle of it.
0: You've got a three-pronged approach to converting to regen ag here. Yep. Multi-species pasture cropping. Yep time controlled grazing yes. and reducing your use of the sides the yes. fungicide pesticide that's right herbicide yes so how are you integrating those approaches how does it work in practice
1: yeah sure I mean like anything in nature it's pretty messy and blotchy and look we're just putting in multi-species kind of where we can putting in a lot of annual and perennial species the whole thing with multi-species is there's no perfection around the you know you've got to put this in that and what mix it's really just got to have diversity in it so we're just chucking that in you know wherever we can knowing that when we put it into a paddock that we can't have that paddock been grazed for six eight or ten weeks or whatever it is which means that comes out of rotation and we do have a lot of animals on here at the moment so it's kind of difficult to lock up those paddocks and store them.
0: <laughs> so what's the size of the property how many animals? Um,
1: so we're running all up we own about two and a half thousand head we do have a few farms that we're working with on a more of a short-term basis just to carry some animals for us whilst we're kind of growing. We run ourselves just under 1400 acres across Two kind of locations that are very close by and we lease a lot of land in and around that as well which is included in that total and so I suppose that's got its own challenges you've got some guys like that we lease off you know nearby and they have expectations around how their land should be kind of managed which perhaps isn't coming from a regenerative approach and that's always a little bit tricky but you know we just try and communicate and do what we can do and work through that so time control grazing I mean the farm's always been generally quite well run on that regard it's always had a good good solid rotation they're dairy farmers by background so they already have the paddocks kind of set up for that although you know our mob sizes and, and operations very different so this year we're actually going to rip out nearly every single fence and start again and so we've got some major infrastructure upgrades to happen and then the last piece is yeah just reducing the use of chemicals so to be completely upfront, we do on occasion spot spray in the odd spot which I think as far as it hitting or knocking back microbiology and and, and impacting our animal performance. It'd be a pretty long bow to say that that's impacting those things. I think hyper-concentrated areas as and when required as we kind of go through this transition program is acceptable and I think that's one of the great things about the regenerative movement is that at the moment, and I say at the moment, there's no this is right, this is wrong type thing unlike organics where there's a kind of blanket yes, no, right, wrong, black and white. So I suppose it's helpful to have those tools when you need them but of course the idea is to move away from them completely.
0: What sort of numbers of species are you including in your multi-species pasture crops?
1: Some of them range between kind of seven and eight in a mix through to, I think we've had up to 34 in a mix. There's a little bit of a contest that happens in uh, regen ag with how many you know species you've got in. And like I said, there's no perfect number. You just yeah. need that diversity of brassicas, legumes, cereals, grasses and some quino pods and so yeah that's really the secret sauce so it really depends on what we're doing so we've got our winter forage crop which we've got lots of turnip and kale and stuff like that we're trying to kind of grow out to a you know 20-30 ton of dry matter per hectare that's only got six or seven things in it because to be honest I mean a little bit of diversity it's all good but really we're trying to just grow out that bulk feed for the cattle in the middle of winter but of course those paddocks that we're just trying to improve and and trickle up and, and excite we're happy to throw as much in it as we can.
0: And how are they performing?
1: Okay, and I mean okay only because obviously, due to this kind of transition of shifting the farm off some forms of management that have been heavy reliant on certain types of fertiliser into other approaches, this farm is not humming right now. So, and you know, phosphorus is significantly responsible for root development and things like that. So, it's pretty hard to kind of turn around and you know, be too hard on the multi species and say, Well, they're not performing because I don't think our soils and, and our soil structures and microbiology and nutrition is kind of where it needs to be. We're trying to work pretty hard on that at the moment. But yeah, look, they're going really well. We've got an old fellow who works for us on the farm who's you know just been an amazing support. He's, he's actually been on this farm for over 30 years. He provides me with a, a bit of wisdom and kind of keeps us on track as to how we're going. And multi-species and a lot of things we do completely fly in the face of everything that he's ever been told or practised. Uh, but even he's kind of saying, oh, this is pretty exciting we're seeing some pretty awesome results and there's it's exciting you go out to a paddock that you may not have seen for a month and all of a sudden there's, there's something else coming through that you sowed maybe nine months ago that you didn't expect to kind of come through so yeah he's he's kind of enjoying the, the ride too it's great are you just planting in the autumn or are you
0: planting twice like yeah how are you working it
1: if i was a normal farm i'd be doing two planting so i do a spring spring summer and a autumn plant because we're vertically integrated and we've got a whole brand happening around our business, we're actually going to be planting every month. Now we won't be planting, I don't think, between May and August because you know we kind of get days down here that are top of 6 or 8 degrees and not a lot grows. But we're going to be planting every month. So we've always got fresh paddocks and whatnot kind of coming through, we're starting to get some pretty high-profile people wanting to come and look at the farm and do stuff so I, I think also from a going back to my startup days providing a bit of a theatrical support to what we're doing is we need to have fresh crops coming through all the time and we're kind of managing that as well.
0: Okay well why don't we leave this high perch yep. and go down and look at some of the nuts and bolts. Yep no problems.
1: Dog get up. up.
0: Oh Bit of a jump into the back of the ute there. Here we
2: are.
0: So we're standing in front of a herd of cows. Who have we got here in front of us?
1: So this is actually the market mob. So this is the mob that gets brought in every week and five lucky candidates get pulled out and sent off to the abattoir every Monday night. So yeah, yeah, basically they get a good run of some of the best paddocks. They've always got ad-lib kind of silage and they're at or very close to weight. So yeah, that's kind of a sweet little mob, really.
0: Yeah. yeah. They look very healthy and shiny.
1: They're good. They're great. And as I said, like as tough as the transition is into changing up farming systems on this new farm and, and kind of better understanding how we can use, you know, some of the, the more proven regenerative principles. But at the end of the day, the cattle are growing beautifully. They look fantastic and they're actually eating really really well so that you know that's that's all we can kind of hope for
0: what One, weight do you process them at
1: so once they hit a 500 kilos they make it into this mob here so um so 500 kilos mm. is the is the number
0: how old are the cows
1: kind of 22 months old some of them might be kind of getting close to 23 months some of them will be 20 months this this red tag here for instance he's only kind of 18 months so he, He's kind of done exceptionally well. But yeah, most of them are just under two years.
0: You've got a fascinating business structure. You're working with nine Tasmanian dairy farmers. Tell me how the system works.
1: One of the ways that we work is we provide high growth wagyu genetics to dairies and we buy those calves back. So for me, it was how can I produce beef without owning a cow? Much like how does Uber offer transport without owning a car? That was a way for us to kind of get started. I wasn't handed a family asset which is fine, no problems there, but so I had to try and come up with smart, clever ways of getting up and going with the least amount of capital as possible. And so this is a way we've been able to do that. And what we end up with is a 50% Wagyu, 50% dairy animal, so they are a Wagyu cross, and they're grown out in a regenerative system on on multi-species pastures where we can. All all other times more just a kind of usual ryegrass-clover mix.
0: So you take bulls out to the various farms or a mix of AI and bulls?
1: That's right. We take out, um, yeah, live bulls, and we also send out semen as well. Some farmers like both. Some farmers just like one. Like it just really depends. That's how we do it. Which means I've only got to run 60, 70 odd bulls, and, and I don't have to run any cows. Excellent. <laughs> it's a
0: bit of activity with the, the dog.
1: You, <laughs> just give me a sec. Oxley, get up. you both of you, get up. you get on the youth. Get up, Lottie, get up. Problem is, is they um cattle get inquisitive then the dogs get defensive and, and so it's kind of like you can't blame the dogs because they're just trying to defend themselves but the cattle are kind of, yeah. Now that's the other thing because they've been born on a dairy they get hand reared and so they are by their nature very calm and, and not very afraid of us, right? So they're very, very inquisitive. They are like having big dogs around all the time so it just means when you come into paddocks with other dogs and other animals they're not very afraid of anything. So They're
0: very close and personal here. Yeah, they're very close and personal. Yeah,
1: close and personal. <laughs> um, absolutely.
0: Gorgeous, yeah. How do the cattle like the multi-species crops?
1: They love them. Um, and it's no surprise, you know, like, again, one of those things about the conventional system, if I made you eat spaghetti bolognese all day, every day, for the rest of your life, you get pretty sick of it, right? So it's kind of why when we've got an animal that's evolved as a herbivore, you can imagine they would have grazed on all different types of stuff, so I suppose my point is is with the multi species is because we've got brassicas, we've got different types of legumes, we've got cereals and whatnot in here. Of course they absolutely love it. It's adding diversity to their diet. They get to eat, you know, a bit of tillage radish, which you and I can have a chew on in a sec if you wanted it. It's quite spicy. It's like a, it is a radish. It's um, called daikon radish if you buy it at the supermarket. So they love it. And so they'll often hit the multi-species first and then then they'll start to go on to the boring stuff after.
0: You've had a big change in in the fertiliser application on this property compared to how it was managed before. Yes. What are you applying and how are you managing the transition?
1: Delicately up into some points unsuccessfully uh, and now kind of on the right track and again it's that whole transitioning a farm you know to a different type of system and I kind of did the the wrong thing by the farm and kind of pulled it off conventional synthetic fertilisers all of a sudden and and I really believe it's just fallen flat on its face. And I suppose, you know, you often hear the analogy in the regenerative or organic systems around being like a drug addict. We need this, we put it on, we need this, you just put it on. You you ultimately treat the soil as something you stand to plant up in, not as a living organism with a whole bunch of different dynamic and complex relationships. So... So I kind of went on to kind of organic-based stuff straight away, which kind of I don't think did the farm any great service um, other than make me feel better about things. And so we've kind of started to use a little bit more of the synthetic stuff just for a point in time to get the place up and going and we can then wean it off it again, if you know what I mean. So we have a massive phosphorus deficiency, so we have been using a little bit of single super, and I mean a little kind of, you know, 40, 50 kilos per hectare, but we are starting to use more and more rock phosphate. We've got, you know, 300 cubic metres of chicken manure here we're about to put out, which is high in pea. So we're absolutely 100% committed to and moving towards more organic stuff, that we have where we're required and where needed be. Using a little bit of the synthetic stuff, just because we needed that water-soluble, high impact, immediate shot in the arm, and we needed that for a number of different reasons. But I suppose in time, we yeah, we're transitioning out of that.
0: Now you strike me as incredibly busy with this whole startup <laughs> business, and I was having an interesting chat with Rebecca Gorman the other day. She's a regen beef producer from near Gundagai in New South Wales, and also plays quite an important role in land to market and. We were talking about that mechanistic worldview versus a holistic worldview and a lot of the farmers in her producer group talk about a really important aspect of regen agriculture is removing the amount of stress in the system. When you've got a lower input, more natural based system, part of it is moving away from that
1: grind.
0: As you're in the transition process, how do you see that sort of dynamic and that thinking?
1: I can see once you're up and going and things are humming in, in a couple of years that perhaps it will be less stress, perhaps. I mean, I'm not producing a commodity product here, so I suppose that's the other thing is I don't have kind of that commercial pressure on me. On I mean, yes, we try and keep our inputs low and make sure I can sell my meat at a market price and still make money. I don't have huge expensive kind of input costs but I suppose I'm not looking at cattle markets worried about kind of what's happening. It certainly wouldn't be at the moment. And then you know I think if you look at mental health and human health and how that's increasingly being linked to what we eat, how we eat, some of the chemicals and other things that we use in our food systems we're only going to see more and more of that in time. And then you look at you know regenerative or organic farmers and they often are very relaxed and easy going and, and I, I I think perhaps are healthier because they don't use those chemicals. They're not around them and I've been covered in Roundup. I've been covered in all that shit before and I've lost my hair from it and and all other types of stuff and I I think that perhaps we're going to see more and more research come out about that and I think that does play into mental health, stress, pressure and you've only got to listen to Zach Bush in the US to see what they're finding out over in the US and how that works. So, So I think I can see it in some ways. To be completely upfront and talking from a farming perspective, it is an incredibly difficult system. There is no support. I cannot ring up my local agronomist. I cannot ring up my local farm supplier store. I have no technical support locally at all. So I think it's an absolute illusion to consider that regenerative farming is, is less stress i think it may be and will be once we get up and going once i work out what i'm doing but it's a pretty lonely ride a lot of the time when you're trying to use these different teas and compost bits and bobs you're kind of going back to year 10 science you have to buy your own microscope and try and work out is what you're doing a waste of time can i see protozoa in this particular you know implement it's so easy to ring up your local rural supply store have them drop off a thousand liters of whatever or 20 liters of this or up a ton of that and chuck it on I mean it's just it is easy conventional farming is easy there is no doubt about it and the reason it's so successful and so widely adopted is because it's easy I'm not saying it's it's an easy run you know farming's tough you're dealing with a lot of uncontrollables but as far as managing your inputs and, and actually working on your agronomy it's a pretty simple formula and that's why it's been so effective and so powerful and now all of a sudden we're having to create the wheel and there's a lot of trial and error. So I suppose just to wrap up that is the great thing about regenerative agriculture is there's so much support albeit only online but you've got great networks with Twitter and Facebook and all this where there are people and it's all a very much all inclusive or rising tide floats or boats I don't think there's a lot of competition everyone's trying to help each other and they're doing it for the greater good, they're doing it for land, human health environmental health and with, with that comes a lot of collaboration and support so you know it is a lonely ride every day of the week but I know that I've got on my phone, access to some people around Australia, New Zealand and overseas who are running incredibly top-notch, fast-moving, competitive, commodity-based businesses with regenerative practices and that they're, they're there when I need them. But um, day-to-day, it's, it's a very different experience.
0: If we want to transition at scale, what, what's the challenge for, for agriculture in order to enable that transition?
1: Well, I think the good thing about the conventional system is it's generally systematised, right? An agronomist in Victoria is going to give you a similar kind of analysis and reading of a soil test from an agronomist in northern New South Wales. Like, they're trained the same. It's all very systematised. And so I think regenerative is going to not have to move to that system because that's that reductionist kind of approach where can break things down into simple things to easily manage it's great for the human brain but from a natural system point of view we compromise things left right and center so but i have to say that there are some things in the regenerative space that could perhaps be systematized or or moved around or changed to to make it kind of easier to get on with but um I, i don't know to answer your question, and I think that's why we're building data, if we can show that it's better or that it's as good and it's cheaper or it's more effective or all those things, people will find a way of making it happen. And I think increasingly now we're starting to see some great consumer-focused communications and brands and stuff get out there to spread the good word. And as there is more demand, there will be more supply and farmers will find a way of making it doing. But you know, I generally find there's a lot of people, especially in my age group, that are starting to look at this and think, OK, what what is this? and what's this going to be and how's it going to work and, and they're interested and I think that's fantastic.
0: Sam, it's been great. Thank you for taking me around the farm and explaining things. I'm just going to go inside and have a chat with Steph about the marketing.
1: No, thanks very much for your time. It's always good to share our story and I suppose if people can you know take away some lessons or learnings and, and whatnot from what we're doing, that a big part of what we're, what we're doing is trying to help other people understand the ups and downs and ins and outs of, uh, of the regenerative approach. So happy to help out.
0: Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you. Um, yes, yeah. yeah. It um, might be out the front room, so if you want to yeah. come out there, I'll just send a message. Okay. Thanks, right. Sam. Good,
0: Cheers. Hi, Steph. How are you? Hi. Lovely to have you. Good, thanks. How are you? Good. What a stunning room. It's like you've got your own home cinema live streaming the mountains here.
3: It is, yeah, definitely the favourite room in the house. And Yeah, it's beautiful here.
0: Yeah, I want to strap on a backpack and go hiking.
3: <laughs> well, feel free to do so. I, I don't hike, but I love enjoying the view.
0: <laughs> so, Steph, you're the director of brand and marketing at Taz Agco. You launched your beef product two months ago, and you're now in 10 Hill Street grocer stores around Tasmania mania how did it feel to finally do the launch
3: yeah it was is a massive relief to be honest you know we've been working so hard on this business from concept right through to being on a plate it's taken pretty much three years of hard work to finally get product to market as you know cattle take a while to um, grow and it's not a easy process it's not a quick process so it was really rewarding and it is really rewarding to start to see some of our hard work pay off. How's it going now that you're two months in? Yeah, it's going well. We're actually really excited to be looking at some other markets outside Tassie. So that's our focus at the moment. Um, We're chatting to a butcher in Melbourne and a few others around the place to take our regenerative beef to the mainland. So that's really exciting and just starting to spread our wings and constantly learning and growing. And yeah, it's been, been a bit of a journey.
0: What about restaurants? Are you looking to target those at all?
3: Yeah, definitely. It's funny, um, our initial strategy before COVID hit was focused predominantly on restaurants and butchers, and then COVID hit, and obviously that happened, which was a blessing for us in terms of the timing that it happened because if it was right now it, it would have been a disaster but for us we were really lucky because it was pre-launch so we kind of just pivoted our strategy and obviously retail has been pumping because people couldn't go to restaurants at that time but they could you know still have to go to the supermarket so hopefully we're seeing the end of that and yeah we're definitely looking at restaurants around the country and I suppose you know being quite careful with who we work with it's about working with like-minded people and people that understand the regenerative space and whose customers are going to want regenerative produce. So that's not going to be everyone. Yeah, it's just about aligning ourselves with the right type of people.
0: What role does having a soil carbon project play in marketing to the consumer and to restaurants and whoever?
3: An enormous role. I mean, we've seen in many different industries, many different things that come and go is a lot of greenwashing, particularly when it comes to marketing. And and that's something that we've been really wary of. And we really want to build a brand that has a lot, lot of integrity behind it. And data is key. You can't fight the science and you can't fight the data. So for us, a lot of the ways we farm or the ways we farm are regenerative, but where's the data to show it? So we've been doing our own testing on farm. We're collecting data, everything from plant tissue tests, blood tests of our animals, our own soil tests but then at the heart of that you know our mission is to eventually be truly carbon positive and what that means as you would know is basically proving that we can sequester more carbon than our entire operation emits and doing that through regenerative farming. And the way to measure that, obviously, is through our soil carbon project, which we selected AgriProve to do that because it was the only one with protocol that you know was eligible under the UN Paris Agreement through the Emissions Reduction Fund. And that was really important to us, particularly from a consumer point of view, because we need to have that credibility behind us and we don't want to be out saying things if we can't prove it.
0: I love the videos that you've produced for Tazagco. They're so luscious and cinematic. You were a TV journalist prior to farming. How has that influenced your approach to the business?
3: Initially, I wasn't sure how I would fit into the business because it's pretty intimidating going from the city and the bright lights of the city and tv to living on a farm and I guess being a farmer in many ways I wasn't sure how I'd fit into this business but it became pretty clear pretty quickly that you know a lot of the value of our business is in the brand and will be in the regenerative space and marketing is so critical to that so I love telling stories. It's yeah, my passion. So I'm really excited that we're able to build a business to consumer brand that can connect with people and tell our story, and that's where a lot of the fun is for me in my role, so I'm really enjoying it.
0: You've been tracing your journey on social media through Facebook and Instagram. How valuable has it been for you to share your journey? in this way
3: oh it's been such a blessing that we started sharing our journey before we even had a product that was in market initially I was like oh is it worth it but it's really nice to have that backstory and to take people on that journey with us and you know it's a really powerful tool we've had butchers chefs restaurants approach us via social media purely because they've been following us or they've seen our video or whatnot and funnily enough we've actually recently just hired a full-time worker Tom a young guy who's joined us and he found us through Instagram Instagram and he sent us a message and said, I'm really interested in the regenerative space. I love what you guys are doing. Do you need help? Are you, have you got any vacancies? And, you know, we're a startup, we're a small business, and we didn't really at the time. But Sam in particular um, needed the help, and, and now he's working for us full time. So that's powerful, and that's the power of social media. Have you ever felt a little exposed sharing
0: so much of yourselves, particularly before you had actually produced anything? <laughs>
3: Um, I'm used to, not used to oversharing, but I suppose being in journalism for most of my career, that's where the emotion is in, in being honest, open, transparent, and that's really important. So yeah, I suppose, especially in the regenerative space, like it's quite a new concept and haters are going to hate. There's people that are skeptical about it and whatever. We've just sort of taken the approach. You do you, we'll do us. This is what we believe in. This is our journey take it or leave it but for the people that enjoy following us we have made a real effort to I guess bring them along for the ride and it's not always easy it's you know the Instagram photos look great but you know for anyone who's watched our trailer um, our trailer video we released a couple of months ago you know it's been hard too and and we've tried to be open with some of the emotional stuff as well and I think that's really important.
0: What is your biggest challenge from the marketing perspective?
3: I think our biggest challenge is educating the consumers and the market about what regen ag is it's a very new and immature concept i suppose i mean people have been farming regeneratively for hundreds thousands of years and it's not like it's new to the regenerative farmers that do it it's just new that it's kind of becoming a bit more of a mainstream thing and people are talking about it more and i think with that comes a lot of confusion i think there will be confusion before there's clarity but certainly from a marketing perspective our biggest challenge is trying 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 to educate consumers on what regen ag is, and without demand from them, more and more producers won't jump on board. So we need demand for supply. How do you see the regen
0: ag movement moving forward?
3: I think the next year or probably the next two years are going to be really interesting to see how it all evolves in market. We're seeing a lot of big businesses, the likes of Harris Farm Markets, they're starting to take notice. They're launching their own kind of soil focus in terms of marketing. So people are listening and people realize that it is the next thing that I think in 10, 15 years time, regenerative farming will be just almost normal like that is what will be demanded that we regenerate our land and we sequester carbon I think that will be the norm now it's not the norm and so it'll be it's going to be really interesting to see how the market adapts to it how consumers adopt it and yeah it's going to be a really interesting next couple of years I think
0: well Steph thanks very much for having me on your farm today and telling me all about your business
3: thank you so much been lovely to have you
0: Stephanie Trethewey, co-founder and director of Tazag Co. The team behind AgriProof, the soil carbon company that supports this podcast, has been out and about at events over the last month, including Farm World in Gippsland and the Farming Matters conference in Albury. Matthew Warnkin, AgriProof's Managing Director, particularly enjoyed catching up with some pioneers in the regen space. Previously, they were locked out of soil carbon projects, but that has now changed. The sticking point was how to measure the effectiveness of activities that build soil carbon. To be eligible for a project, you have to do something new or materially different. Agriproof has done a lot of work on quantifying material difference in the field, and this has opened up new opportunities for those early adopters of regenerative agriculture.
4: So last year we did a lot of work around showing materially different land management practices uh, as opposed to new. Now, this may sound like a whole lot of administrative technicalities, but the great thing about those conversations was that now there was an opportunity for those pioneers to participate in projects because they were doing things that are materially different and will be materially different over the next 10 years. So seeing a lot of enthusiasm to take up that opportunity to get farms baseline and create that ability to participate in the carbon market.
0: To be paid for carbon credits under the Emissions Reduction Fund, you need to be registered for a project with the Government's Clean Energy Regulator. But there are also voluntary markets and a range of independent verification systems. It can be a bit confusing, and one of the most recent high-profile announcements has been the $500,000 soil carbon deal between New England Grazier, Wilmot Cattle Company, and Microsoft, the IT giant. For people who are wanting to wrap their heads around the carbon market, how would you explain what's happening at the moment?
4: So what's really positive is the focus and attention that uh, soil carbon is receiving, both from a a land management practice to improve farm productivity and also as a way of generating additional on-farm revenue. I guess there's two key aspects that we talk about with landholders looking at entry into those markets. And, And one is the certification program. And then the second is who's buying. So with the Australian program, the certification is from the Australian government. So it's actually, a compliance-based certification program so every carbon credit issued comes with the full backing of the Australian government. So it's not a voluntary certification program where the backing is provided by whoever's doing the certification of the certificates. The main point for landholders is looking at the quality of the certification. So you've got a program backed by the Australian government in terms of those ACUs being issued. And what that means is that there will be compliance buyers, there'll be government buyers, and there will also be voluntary voluntary market buyers, whereas a voluntary certification program, whoever's running that certification program, can only ever be purchased under a voluntary arrangement. And that's that's where you run into issues in terms of, well, what is the future demand for those voluntary certified carbon credits for AgriProve, where we firmly believe the best no regrets scenario for landholders to maximise their future earnings from carbon markets is to go with a compliance certified programme, such as the Emissions Reduction Fund, where those credits that are issued do count to Paris and do count to our national targets.
3: If you're
0: a farmer waiting on results from your soil carbon sampling tests, you may have been waiting a little longer than expected. Labs around the country are scaling up to meet the growing demand for testing as the interest in soil carbon projects escalates. I caught up with Graham Lancaster, head of the environmental labs at Southern Cross University at the Farming Matters Conference, to find out how they're handling the extra workload.
2: I'm the manager director of the environmental analysis laboratory at Southern Cross University. I started up as a student 30 years ago, and now we've got over 50 staff. So it's a very busy job. We're a commercial research and teaching laboratory at the university, so owned and operated by the university, but to support all the research and teaching in the new region, ag degree as well so a big task.
0: (laughs) Now what sort of testing do you do because a a lot of regen farmers and certainly AgriProof sends a lot of its soil samples to you.
2: We really do anything. So we do from contamination to agronomy, soils, plants, human hair testing, animal hair testing and right through the carbon which has really ramped up in the last three to six months. We just can't keep up with it. It's huge and we just can't see an end point to it. So things are stretching out, we're trying to get ahead and the university is helping us but with a bit of a catch up period there. So
0: tell me what's involved in doing the testing for soil carbon.
2: Soil carbon to dry the samples, we, they come as cores often, so they're they're a metre long for the meter samples. So we've got a container, a full container, and turn it into a drying oven. So we dry all the samples straight away, but then we've got to go through a huge crushing process. There's a lot of work involved to separate out the two millimetre fraction from the rest, the rock from the, the carbon. Uh, and then we've got to homogenise the core down to a, a powder and then we've got to treat it with acid to remove the carbonates and then we put it through a Leco combustion analyzer for the organic carbon and it's all accredited testing. So it's a lot of procedure and a lot of work involved.
0: How long does it take to test each sample?
2: The testing goes through a whole process. So generally a sample and a core takes about a week to test but we've got such a backlog and they go through in batches we're getting anywhere from 500 to 1,000 samples a week. We've got three Leco carbon analyzers at the moment, we've got another two on order, and that'll ramp us up a little bit, I'm sure that won't get us ahead, so it's just a continual battle trying to, to keep up with the market.
0: How many samples were you getting a year ago?
2: Oh, a year ago we were probably only getting one to 200 a week. It's probably fivefold to ten-fold, than what we were. We service all of Australia, so we've got clients coming to us now promising 17,000 samples this year. Uh, another client with 10,000. And those sort of numbers are just scary.
0: So how do you see this industry evolving from the sampling side of things? Because measurement is a key element of having a soil carbon project in Australia under the Emissions Reduction Fund.
4: Yeah,
2: Look, it's so important getting this measurement right. So we're all accredited for it and we put a lot of time and effort in doing it right and it's needed by the industry to get the right numbers. So there's a lot of quality control through the whole process. Because we're associated with the Regen Ag degree, we also have a vested interest that we want to help regenerative agriculture and we want to help farming in Australia. So there's such a huge benefit potential for farmers that the wind's going to be all in the industry.
0: Will labs across Australia need to ramp up to be able to deal with the demand for soil sampling for carbon?
2: I think a lot of labs are looking at it at the moment, but they do need to get this NADA accreditation. It's the National Association of Testing Authorities, so they've got to ramp up their quality control as well. And we really, we don't want backyard labs doing this. They've got to be proper labs and do it seriously. It's for the best of the farmers and the best of the industry to do it properly, and there is, like I say, a big procedure to it.
0: <laughs> so you're getting a, a couple more Leco combustion analysers. How are you dealing with the increase in demand?
2: We're putting on staff every day, basically. It's just constant. A lot of labouring staff on just crushing soils and putting it through special grinders for the sample preparation and sieving the samples at two mils. So it's very intensive work, but we also have a lot of the specialised analysis, so we're putting more analysts on as well. So we've got a lot of students coming through. We can move into analysis as well while they're between jobs or looking where they want to go after university. So we have a, a staffing base there which works really well with the university.
0: How many more staff do you think you've put on to deal with this carbon demand?
2: I'd say at least 10 staff at the moment specialised to that project and we're still only ramping up and tapping the surface of what we need. We're running out of space, we're in a university, teaching is a priority so we've got space what we can but there's big limitations there.
0: Well, Graham, great to speak to you. Good luck with keeping up with the demand, and I'm sure there are a lot of farmers who are waiting very expectantly for the results.
2: Well, we're doing our best and we're, we're there to help them. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Graham Lancaster, Managing Director of the Environmental Analysis Laboratory at Southern Cross University's Lismore campus. Carbon projects under the Emissions Reduction Fund are governed by the Carbon Farming Initiative legislation and specifically the Agricultural Systems Methodology of 2018. In order to be paid for building soil carbon, a farmer needs to physically baseline the carbon in the soil and then measure it again within five years. After the soil is sampled in the paddock, it's sent to the lab for analysis. Once the results are complete, they go through a set of around 160 calculations before the results are submitted to the regulator and the farmer can be issued with their carbon credits. It's a time-consuming and expensive business. To improve efficiencies and reduce costs, the regulator and the industry are looking to update the system, moving from a measure and measure approach to a measure-model measure system. The modelling component would enable farmers to receive annual payments for sequestering carbon. After the initial baseline, remote sensing satellite data would be used to estimate increases in soil carbon before the next field test in the paddock. The soil carbon industry is involved through the Soil Carbon Task Force of the Carbon Market Institute, Matthew Warnkin co-chairs the task force.
4: Under the current uh, setup, credits are only issued when there's a measured increase in soil carbon, which you actually have to go out into a physical round of sampling. The new proposed changes or updates in the 2021 method would bring on board satellite remote sensing technology so that you could look at getting annual issuance of credits So, for example, using satellite data that's highly correlated to soil carbon and using that data to show that there's uh, been an increase in soil carbon opens the opportunity for lower costs and annual issuance of credits, which then just improves the overall economics and attractiveness of of running a soil carbon project and making it even easier to participate.
0: So that means that farmers could be paid once a year rather than once every five years.
4: Yeah, exactly. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of technical detail to go through. But probably the other thing that's exciting about this approach of integrating remote sensing satellite technologies is the improved data that we'll get not only for carbon but for a number of other aspects to do with natural capital or ecosystem services. So that will reduce the costs of measuring and monitoring ecosystem services and get better information about how landscapes are performing over time. Now what that means to to farmers is as we get better at measuring these kind of indicators and things like biodiversity, things like water quality, uh, even potentially things like soil organic nitrogen, which all have a bearing on overall landscape function. As so we get better at measuring that data and those changes, we'll also be able to get better at monetizing that or opening up new markets, such as the Queensland Land Restoration Fund, where the Queensland government was paying landholders for those associated co-benefits ecosystem services with running soil carbon projects. So the new method new improved data, lower cost data, remote sensing, annual issuance of carbon credits and opening up access to new market opportunities like biodiversity, like water quality and so on. We see a lot of upside in early participation and in helping to frame and access those markets.
0: like to know more about the science of soil carbon, we've had great feedback about the series of webinars on growing top soils by Declan McDonald. You'll find links to it in the show notes. If you've got any ideas you'd like to share for the podcast, email me at alexandra@agriprove.io. Next month, we'll be out in the field in the Upper Murray. Until then, if you haven't already, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends and colleagues on socials. I'm Alexandra de Blas, and this is The Regen Report. I'll catch you next time.